Welcome to the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast, making art work. We highlight how entrepreneurs align their artistry, passion, and vision to create and pursue opportunities to capture value in the arts. The views expressed by guests on the Arts Entrepreneurship Podcast are solely their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the podcast or its hosts. The appearance of a guest on the podcast, the venture they represent, or reference to any product or service does not imply an endorsement or recommendation by the podcast or its hosts. The content provided is for entertainment and informational purposes only and does not constitute business advice. Here are your hosts, Andy Heiss and Nick Petrella. Welcome podcast listeners. My name is Andy Heiss. And I'm Nick Petrella. We have Debbie Wish with us today. She is a film and documentary producer and has produced The Price of Everything, which sold to HBO before it premiered at the 2018 Sundance Film Festival to rave reviews. It went on to receive global distribution and an Emmy nomination. Her most recent feature-length documentary is The Art of Making It, which explores the art world through the prism of emerging artists. It's a great film, and I encourage anyone in the visual arts or any art to watch it. Debbie has many more accomplishments than we can list here, so we'll link to her bio in the show notes. Debbie, thanks for being with us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You strike me as a really positive person, but I'm, I'm sure being a producer isn't all sunshine and rainbows. So what are some of the activities you have to address that maybe keep you up at night and, and how do you approach them? Um, interestingly enough, the creative challenges I find thrilling and I like solving those kind of problems. I think it's hard managing. There's a lot of egos and a lot of, you know, different personality types. And on this particular project, I had to navigate that via Zoom. Um, You know, those are the things that keep me up at night more than the creative challenges. Even when on this film, you know, worried, worrying about distribution and changes in the distribution and like, I had worked with HBO on my last film and all the people I worked with were no longer there. And then HBO changed and they got so like none of that stuff concerned me in the same way that the people stuff, because you want everyone to get along and you want everyone to like each other. And you also want everyone to play to their strengths. And I have three grown children and I kind of can be mother hen where I just want it all to be nice, nice. So (laughs) That's, yeah, that's a good point. I mean, up at night. <laughs> right. Yeah, it's a good point because artists are very creative people and creative people have their own eccentricities and passions and that can lead to discord. So how, how have you dealt with that or have you dealt with uh, conflicting visions or personnel issues and how did you handle it? I mean, on, on this film, there weren't, I wouldn't say there were a lot, but what usually happens when you're, a filmmaker, when you're the producer or director or the distributor, someone has what's called um, final cut, <laughs> which is like the final vision. So on this film, I had the final cut, but you kind of want everyone to buy into your vision. Um, 
And I tend to like to solicit all the opinions of the team and then um, make my own decision. I had one or two people on the team that maybe I trusted their vision more than others. So I might consult with them on the side. side. But I, I, you know, on my first film, there were creative differences. That's normal. Like you're, you kind of want that and you want the tension of that. It, I think it makes things better. Um, it also on this project, we had a lot of women. It was very female and also very diverse. And I don't want to draw conclusions or make stereotypes, but I think we all respected each other's opinion and wanted to listen to them. That makes sense. But I think when you, I learned this after my first film, when you create a contract as a producer, whether it's with the director, the editor or sound, you want to be as specific Mm -hmm. as possible. Even things like phone calls have to be returned within 24 hours or I make the decision and, you know, we can dispute things for a week and then we have a third person make the decision. Is that something you do? Is that one of the tenets that you phone calls have to be returned quickly? Yeah. I think it's really, really, really important to be quick and responsive. And I also, as you know, I return every email and every phone call. I think it's really arrogant. Yeah. I think it's stupid not to. You never know who's going to end up where, who's going to help you. And um, I'm always shocked when people don't do that. Mm-hmm. I think as a professional and as a human being, you should just give people um, the dignity of responding to inquiries. <laughs> That's great. That's super advice. So throughout the making of The Art of Making It, uh, what did you learn that surprised you the most? And is there something, uh, is there, if you could choose one thing that emerging artists need to know about the art uh, world, what might that be? You know, that I sort of knew it, but I spent a lot of time on this film with the artists because so many of them came with us on tour. Um, and also, you know, Sometimes their flights and accommodations were covered, but none of them were ever paid for their time. They just did it for the love of the project, which was so appreciated. I think what I gained more knowledge about is how much is asked of artists and how little they receive in return. And even for an artist at a gallery, they're making 30 cents on the dollar for every sale. And it's just a really, really, really hard profession. And the vast majority of artists are people working in creative fields, mm-hmm. curators, writers, gallerists. It, it's not glamorous. It's really, really, really hard. The big advantage of it is that you're around creative people and ideas. But, you know, even some of the artists who are in the film, and we happen to film a lot of artists at pivotal moments and their careers have subsequently really taken off. But, you know, others of them are working other two or three jobs. And when they graduate from school, they don't have to get one rent. They have to get two rents. They need a place to work and they need a place to live. And then some of them, a lot of them are paying back debt. I don't think I was fully aware of how much student debt MFA students have. 
And I don't think I was aware of the fact that they could borrow against loans once they graduate, which is just crazy. Um, and also that they're getting loans on the same basis as someone who's getting an MBA or a law degree, right. which yeah. you can monetize. That's someone right. recently argued with me and they were like, no, you can go to Wharton and you can't monetize. 10% of the students aren't monetizing the degree. And I said, that's factually incorrect. That's it's because right. 10% opt out of the workplace because right. they're having children or doing something else. But you absolutely, you know, whether you go to law school, like a top 10 law school or business school or medical school, you're at a school and you are monetizing that degree and you probably are paying back any loans within a year or two for an artist that just doesn't happen. That's right. So if we as a society value the contribution of artists to communities, you know, to the world beyond those like less than 1% of them who are really making it at galleries, I think there needs to be some sort of support. And I gained, I just, I got more empathy for the artists and I guess more appreciation um, for the predicament. And, you know, I guess my own ideas of what we can do to support them and maybe change that. That's great. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the funding that's necessary to shoot a documentary like the art of making it. Um, did you start with a budget and, and then pursue the project based on that budget or is it kind of one of those things? Um, and you, you've used this word a few times like ecosystem films where you're, you're not necessarily sure where it's going to take you, which means you might need more money to finish it or something like that. So you absolutely should not start a film without a budget. <laughs> and if you're not in a position to kind of, not worry about the sale of the film. You should probably not start a film without having at least some discussions with distributors or places where it might land. Um, most documentary films are in the, I mean, it's sort of a joke. We always say it's a million dollars to make a documentary film, um, but you can back into a budget. Okay. On like the price of everything had a much bigger budget than this film. The amount of money that ended up on the screen was the exact same, partially because it was a lot of us, we weren't siloed. We did other jobs, but you kind of will spend as much as you're, you have in the budget. Sure. Um, I think it's hard to do something with beautiful production value and original music and logos and websites and whatever and a festival run and yeah. a little bit of marketing and PR, et cetera, for less than a million. Um, but I also know now that films aren't going to theaters and also, you know, iPhones and handheld, the technology is better and people can edit at home. I've seen incredible films that were made for 300,000 or less. Right. So it depends how you want to make it. I mean, there are incredible films that might have more of a, a story angle or a character that's so great that you can have kind of not great quality, but the story is so compelling that you can get away with that and the budget's way less. But it's almost like how much does it cost to build the house? Right. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah, how much. That's a good point. You know, but I, I, I think you should have a budget <laughs> and also a lot of the people you're working with, whether it's an editor or a composer, or graphics or 
you know, the trailer people, I just was working with a wonderful company in New York called Jump Cut. And they were able to give us a bit of a cut on our trailer because we're doing it just to support the theatrical. And it's like coming out of my pocket, our budget spent. So you're you're kind of in a position to do that. And I know as a professional, when I was doing consulting projects, you know, when you're working for a young startup and you're excited about it, you might take on a smaller fee than if you're working for right. a big corporation where they're kind of expecting to pay more and they're expecting a different level of service. So, but don't start anything without a budget. That is a huge mistake. Well, you're, you're, I think the, the house analogy is interesting. Like, you know, the, the house I want to build or the house that I can afford to build right now is different than the house I maybe eventually want to build or buy or whatever in the future. Uh, So kind of, you know, it's based on, you know, where you are and uh, what you want to, what you want to make. I also think that before you do a budget, you should try as much as you can to create a deck or to script something. And can you, you've said, you said deck a couple of times. Can you just uh, help us know what, what you mean by deck? I mean, I think of a deck as both visual and literal, Mm -hmm. but it would be, you know, the, it might have a title. It might have a working title. It might have a certain aesthetic, a look some visuals of what you're thinking the film will look like a write-up of the tone and the mood and the music and the, you know, thematically, like if you're doing a film, an ecosystem film is going to be a little more nuanced in terms of like the log line or the pitch. But if you're doing a, you know, something on a musician, Elvis, you should have a pretty clear idea how you're attacking something like that. Yeah. So yeah. A pitch deck is just like any business deck, but it's okay. for a film. Yeah. Great. Gotcha. Be- before I, I get to the last question here, I just want to emphasize how important it is uh, to return calls and correspondence. I mean, I, you really hit the nail on the head with that. You know, when I reached out to you, you graciously accepted my cold call and invitation to speak to to one of our classes and, and to be on the podcast. So it's just, it, it just means a lot to the, the person on the other end. Yeah. I appreciate you saying that. You know, I I um I grew up in Winnipeg, Canada, and I will credit my father, who's a very successful real estate developer. And my dad always said, you always serve coffee, take someone to the elevator, and you return calls and letters. And I think having, you know, just good manners and decency gets a long way. And I also would add that persistency and tenacity are really, really important in this field. It's sort of like being an actress, being a singer, like you're get, so many people are going to say no, but you got to keep getting up to bat. And the, I have a number of interns working for me who are all college students and I always pay them. And literally every single one of them, and they're all amazing, they got the job because they wouldn't leave me alone. (laughs) They made themselves like so present that I had to say yes. And I kind of want that attitude in people who are going to be out making a movie because you have to have that stick to it-ness. That's right. So, (laughs) yes. While doing our research for the uh, the interview, I noticed that you're also a benefactor to the arts. You've been on a board in some fashion for Stanford University's Cantor Arts Center, the Guggenheim Museum, Hunter College's Art Advisory Board, Jewish Museum, 
Film Society of Lincoln Center and more. Why are the arts so important to you? I mean, I think it's sort of the prism through which I see the world. And I, I want to say, you know, someone will ask, like, what's the worst problem in the world? Like, you know, today, right now, gun violence to me. But it's hard to nail those things. But a, con a constant in my life has always been an interest in art and the arts, because I think it brings people together. It's a universal language. I think it makes connections that you don't see in other places. It brings me a whole lot of joy. And I think access to the arts and making the arts more accessible to other people brings joy. Um, and I, I don't want to say it's the most important thing in the world, but it's probably one of the most important things in my world. And I've seen it transform neighborhoods. I've seen it transform people's lives. I also think it's sort of, um, you know, there's icky stuff in every world, but it's sort of a meritocracy. Like people can break through, especially now with social media and kind of artists' ability to connect. but. I don't know. I, I go into, I live in New York City and I spent, yesterday I was at the New Museum, the Face Ringgold show, and she's a 91-year-old artist who's just now getting her due. And you sort of see it and you revisit history and historical moments and sort of women's issues and, you know, a female artist of color getting her due at 91 and seeing young kids in the museum. It just brings me a lot of joy and hope. And, um, you know, it's sort of the lane that I function in best. Yeah, sure. But I, I also think that um, if I can leave everyone with a, a message is to engage in the arts wherever you are. Give yourself one hour a week, go visit art studios, go to a museum, go to a concert, there's so much free stuff. I was in Cleveland where you happen to have one of the most beautiful encyclopedic museums I've seen in the country or any country. And I've spent a lot of my life, especially in the last 10 years in museums. And I was reading the plaque outside and it said that the, one of the mandates of that museum was that it would always be free. So you walk into that museum and there isn't even a desk like the Metropolitan Museum or the Guggenheim in New York where they're actually checking your membership or taking money. You just walk into that museum and it is a jewel. It's as good as any museum in the country or in the world. And it's free. That and certainly helps think, with access. Yeah. And there's also stuff on the streets that's free and incredible. And I think, you know, people should take advantage of that. I think it would bring down the temperature and it would inspire them. And I think for kids, they make these connections. You see in our film, you know, three of the artists talk about seeing something as a kid that changed their life and kind of filled yeah. it with this higher calling or purpose. And, you know, I think art has the ability to do that or the arts. And I think sports do. Where it's just, it has nothing to do with the, you know, your socioeconomics or your age or your nationality or religion. And it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. 
Debbie, we've reached the part of our interview where we ask all of our interviewees the same three questions. And the first question is, what advice would you give to others wanting to become an art entrepreneur in your art form? Only do it if you really, really, really want to do it because it's hard. Um, But if you have that thing in you, it's also wonderful because it is it's a joyful place. I think the creative space and sort of being in the flow is a joyful space. Um, But you have to have a stomach for rejection. (laughs) (laughs) And I think return phone calls and be tenacious. Sure. And read and see everything. What can we do to ensure the arts are more accessible and reaching the widest possible audience? I mean, I think what I had just talked about, I think, Go see art on a local level. Don't only like go to the big museums, but go experience student art shows, go to free concerts, support artists, whether they're, you know, I, I, some people will only buy art if it's sort of marquee names and going to go up in price. But I just think that if you care about art and you, you sort of look at what it does to communities If you're in a position to financially support it, I think you should. Um, If you're not in a position to financially support it, I think showing up just means so much. Just having an audience and having people see and experience the work. Um, And I I think that that will increase accessibility. Post, talk about it, do podcasts about it. (laughs) And what's the best artistic or entrepreneurial advice anyone's ever given you? to lean into your truth and to trust your gut. If you have, usually your first instinct is the right one. And sometimes you have to kind of explore a bit, but my experience has been that first instinct is usually the right one. And I would also say that um, someone told me when I started my first film, like you're getting in bed to these with these people forever. Make sure you're getting in bed with people you really like. Mm. I think that's super important. Um, and Pastor Knack, who's the head of the Brooklyn Art Museum, once said to me, when you're thinking about a board, put together the best dinner party in the world, and that should be your ideal board. And I would say the same for like a film team. Just think of people you really want to hear from and be part of their lives and listen to their stories because it's a long, intense process. Um, yeah. yeah. That's great. Well, Debbie, the time has flown by. I know we have a hard cut off, but I just wanted to say tons of wisdom in your answers. And, and thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I really um, appreciate you tracking me down and... Um, Yeah, and I hope that I left you guys with a few pearls and that um, students heed the advice. And if you have the calling to stay in a creative field, go for it. (laughs) Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please subscribe. Visit artsentrepreneurshippodcast.com to learn more about our guest and how you can help support artists, the arts, and this podcast. (laughs) 